Hi, this is Stacy Hyde, and we're back for another episode of Better Financial Health in 15 Minutes or Less. And this is part two of our discussion about your legal documents, you know, wills, powers of attorney, healthcare powers of attorney, and living will. In the previous episode, we talked about kind of the, the core, what most people needed, who needed what, that sort of thing. But we also get a lot of questions about trust, uh, particularly, you know, what's a revocable living trust? What's an irrevocable trust? What's the difference? What do I need? The thing to remember about a revocable living trust that you set up while you're living, um, what it does is it just puts a shroud of privacy around your affairs. So if you have a lot of assets and they have to be probated, meaning they have to go before the court and title is changed that way, well, that's a public document. Whereas if you have all your assets owned by a living trust, that's generally what they're called, a revocable living trust. It can be a single revocable living trust or in some states, Tennessee being one of them, they recognize joint living trust. So you, if you have this, if you go to the lawyer and you pay the thousands of dollars to get this drafted, it's very, very important that you also update ownership. So things like your house, even really your car, your bank accounts, your retirement accounts will not be titled in the trust, but anything else that you own should be titled in the name of your trust to make it as effective as possible. It doesn't change the taxation. It doesn't change your ability to sell it, to give it away, whatever. It just, if something were to happen to you, it goes into that trust. The other advantage is if you get to where you can't manage your financial affairs, in most living trust, the grantor, meaning the person who established the trust, is also the trustee. And so that person establishes the trust they're the trustee of their trust until they don't want to do it anymore. Then they can relinquish it and turn it over to what is known as the successor trustee. And the advantage to this over say a financial power of attorney is a lot of institutions are a little leery of acting on a power of attorney because there's been a lot of abuse um, there's been a lot of things in the news about, you know, elder abuse and people taking advantage of powers of attorney. Generally speaking, um, the, a trustee has a duty to act in the best interest of the beneficiary. It, it's a very legal duty. It is um, established under law. It's similar to the duty we have to our clients to act in their best interest. So it is kind of the highest duty of loyalty you can owe to another. So if you have an individual or an institution acting as a trustee on your behalf, they're required to act in your best interest the way a prudent person, prudent expert would act in the care of their own affairs. So it's a pretty high bar. So it just seamlessly transitions to the trustee. They continue to manage it. You didn't have to get to, it can be that you get declared incompetent and the successor trustee takes over. It's much more common that the grantor and also beneficiary that established the trust 
says, you know, I just can't do this anymore. You take over. That's what they say to their successor trustee. And so life just goes on. And then they also maintain the ability to change that trustee. So there's a lot of flexibility there. And then when they pass away, the beneficiary, the grantor and beneficiary passes away, it essentially acts in place of a will because the trust says, okay, upon my passing, this is how I want these assets divided up. So it's a very seamless, um, easy transition that doesn't involve in general terms for most people. You know, if you're a gazillionaire, there's always going to be lawyers and accountants involved, but for sort of your normal millionaire next door type, it, it's a pretty seamless process and assets get divided and put into, you know, new trust and it goes from there. So there's some real advantages to that, but it is a little more work to kind of make sure that you're owning everything properly. And then the will that you would have, if you've got this type of trust, just says anything that I didn't transfer into my trust, it goes into my trust. And then retirement accounts are different and you generally don't want them in a trust unless you get some very specific um, language in the um, trust to accommodate those. Generally speaking with a husband and wife, you want any retirement accounts to go to the surviving spouse because they can treat it as their own, stretch out distributions over their lifetime. That used to be the case that a beneficiary could stretch distributions over their lifetime. Now it's more limited. It's generally, it has to be distributed within 10 years if it's a non-spousal beneficiary, more than 10 years younger than the um, person who passed away, that's called a decedent. And so you want to make sure since it's gonna be have to be distributed within 10 years, it's more limited, so you wanna make sure that you've provided for that. That's why it's so valuable that the spouse can continue to stretch it. Now, if you have minor beneficiaries or disabled beneficiaries, a disabled beneficiary can still stretch it over their lifetime. A minor beneficiary um, is not required to take distributions until they reach the age of majority. So you do get some delay or some additional years added to the 10 years there. So uh, trust can be a valuable document. We see them a lot um, for people that don't necessarily want the neighbors or nosy people getting into their business, or they just want the seamless continuity of it. And that's a revocable trust because as long as the person who, who created the document, the grantor is alive, it's completely changeable. An irrevocable trust is designed to be just that irrevocable. You are giving something away forever. And that you more commonly see like life insurance trusts are generally considered an irrevocable trust. Also a key thing to keep in mind is once the original grantor or if it's a joint thing, once one of them passes away, that trust becomes irrevocable as well. So it's important to make sure you understand um, what's in them. If you're executing one of these with the spouse, I had a spouse that, you know, her, they had executed these types of documents. Um, husband passed away and she found out that it was super restrictive on her. And, you know, her answer was he had died pretty young. 
And she's like, you know, I thought when we were doing this that I would be in my 70s or 80s and that would be fine. But, you know, I'm in my 50s. I've still got a young child and I need options. And I, I don't necessarily need a corporate trustee. So we actually had to go to court to get the trustee removed um, so that she would have some more flexibility in her documents. So it's important if you are getting ready to enter into some sort of joint, particularly a joint living trust, or even if your spouse is quite a bit older than you and doing this, that you understand what the ramifications are and exactly how it might play out for you. Valuable tools, but sometimes just a simple will is all you need, but definitely make sure you have the powers of attorney, healthcare powers of attorney, living will, and you communicate with the people that you're gonna wanna have act on your behalf. Thanks for tuning in. If you have any questions, you can shoot us an email at info at Envision, E-N-V-I-S-I-O-N, F-P is in financial planning, T-N is in Tennessee.com, and we will try to get back with you. We do not practice law, so this is not legal advice. We're just trying to give you some general information to help you in your planning. Thanks so much, and this has been another episode of Better Financial Health in 15 minutes or less, and I'm Stacy Hyde.